I'm grateful for those kids. They did a great job. It was pretty great. Would you open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8? If you have one with you, if you don't have one, grab one out of the rack around you, or maybe you've got it on your phone. You can follow along that way this morning. Romans chapter 8, we're going to pick up where we left off at last week, verse 18. I am convinced that no one came in here this morning thinking, man, I sure hope Mark can discourage me today. We just don't do that. We don't arrive with that thought in our heart. So I've got encouragement for you. According to Scripture, Romans chapter 8, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That's encouraging, right? No condemnation whatsoever. So if you find yourself in that status that place where you've identified Jesus Christ as your Savior and you acknowledge the fact that there's no condemnation because of what Jesus did for you, if you're in that place of no condemnation status, the pinnacle of the work that the Holy Spirit has done for you in that position is that God has sealed you according to Scripture. Watch with me on the screen where we were at last week in Ephesians 1, kind of an anchor for where we're going. It says this in verse 13, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. So we're not only destined for eternity, according to God's Word, we're sealed, but we've got an inheritance waiting for us. And that's what we talked about a little bit last week to set this up. Understanding where we're at this morning is very important because this issue of inheritance is so huge, I needed to break it down into two parts. So you'll notice in your notes that it says 53A, next week will be 53B because there's two components to this issue of inheritance I really want to spend time with you on this morning. Before we do that, would you join me in praying together? Father, we come before you recognizing that what we're about to do is beyond human capacity. It requires the work of your Spirit, who will guide us and lead us and give us insight into things we don't know about. Only you know what we came in here this morning with on our hearts, and you know how to speak to us about that issue. So rather than causing those things to be dismissed or to evaporate, Father, we ask that you would show us how you want to work in the midst of whatever issues on our heart today. And through your word, I pray that you would bring encouragement, that you would speak specifically to us and show us how you're working in the midst of whatever is going on in our life right now. And we pray for insight into your word and that you would cause it to be alive and active. As you bring it to life for us, Father, speak to us. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's optimists in this world, there's pessimists in this world. Paul is an absolute realist. He's balanced between optimism and pessimism. He speaks specifically of what he knows to be true. And as he writes to these people in Rome, and God obviously had us on his heart, he's causing Paul to write these things down so that we would read them. Paul needed them to know in the church in Rome that there was no reason for them whatsoever to think that just because they became followers of Jesus Christ, they would be exempt from suffering. As a matter of fact, Scripture seems to indicate that it would be ramped up because they identify with Jesus. So he's realistic with them, and he takes them into this passage in Romans to help them understand that suffering is real. 
So he takes them to some basic theology. He takes us to school. Shows us some very basic things we need to know because it's really important that we understand why they're suffering in this world, why it's going on, and how to bear up underneath it. And you won't see this in your notes, but you'll see it on the screen. You might want to write it down in your notes, but I've identified three categories of suffering that I think are really prevalent in this world today, and I know they were prevalent during the time of Paul. These are things you could simply write down because they're just kind of abbreviated here. Number one, the first thing we understand is that suffering is uh, there because it's a direct result of personal sin. That's one form of suffering. When, when we make bad choices, well, there's consequences for those things. And then the second form of suffering comes from the fact that you and I belong to Jesus. If you're a believer in Jesus, you recognize that there's no condemnation on you. God says, there's going to be suffering associated with belonging to me. The world's going to identify you as being different because the world rejects Jesus. But then there's the third form, and it goes beyond those first two that we talked about, yet they're linked together, and it's where I want to spend the most time this morning. There's a suffering that arises because we live on a fallen planet. This world that we're in the midst of. And all three of these are woven together. So in order to understand these, I need to do a quick review with you of where we were at last week. In verse 17, we saw in Romans chapter 8 that we're told that if we're those who have no condemnation, if, if we identify Jesus as our Savior, then according to what verse 17 says, then we're the children of God. And if children, we're then heirs with Him. But do you remember the qualifier? That we're not just heirs, there's not just an inheritance waiting for us, but there's a qualifier that goes along with it. It says, if indeed we suffer with Him. Now there's two really big aspects to this truth. And you understand if you're a follower of Jesus, especially if you've been following Him for very long, that as you mature in your walk, as you grow in Christ, you come to this place of understanding that the suffering that we're dealing with here, these categories that we're talking about, God actually allows the suffering, and this is a mystery to many people, that God is the one who allows the suffering to come into place. And if you don't think that God is in control of that, you've got a much bigger issue to deal with. Because according to Scripture, God's in control of everything. He's sovereign. He has control of all issues and if he's not sovereign and he's not in control, we have a far bigger issue than just the issue of suffering. So God allows suffering and he allows it to varied degrees. Why does he do that? Well, for one, it drives us deeper into a place of dependence upon him. But according to Scripture, it also produces in us an eternal weight of glory. Look, look with me on the screen at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It says, Therefore we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, and Paul could identify with that because his, his outer man was broken down. His tent was decaying. And he said, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. So in the same sentence, he's saying, this is what no one wants, and this is what everyone wants. Nobody wants suffering. Nobody wants to have a decaying body, but everybody wants the eternal weight of glory. Last week, we said that one of the aspects of suffering is it, reality number two, what I just mentioned, is when you take a stand for Jesus. And I think in context, Paul is talking about that, but in context, he's also talking about the suffering on this planet. 
So there's the suffering when you take a stand for Jesus, when you take a position of righteousness. It is absolutely certain you're going to face rejection. There's a suffering that is produced because the world hates the relationship with Jesus. He said it himself in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. So the persecution just validates God's own word. It's further evidence of this darkness of this planet. And as Jesus' people, we recognize it's inevitable. To some degree, it's going to happen. But then there's the second aspect to suffering, the one that's very obvious to us if we stop and think about it. If you take the context of what Paul's talking about in verses 18 through 23, he's beginning to talk about a suffering on this planet because of the effects of the fall. And you only have to look at verses 18 through 23 to see where he's headed with this. Because of the loss that was produced by the fall of man, it was so profound. It had global catastrophe. And it's so profound that it produced profound suffering. And in most cases, we find ourselves today accepting it as normal. We look around the planet and see some of the things that are going on and thinking, this is just part of living on this earth. We've, we've grown up with it. It's all that we know. Let me just mention a few things that have happened just in the last two months. Earthquakes in Mexico. Hundreds of people killed. In Italy. In China. This last week in Iran, in Iraq. Hundreds of people killed Hurricanes, Puerto Rico, hurricanes, Houston, hurricanes, Florida, killing people and wiping out established civilization. There's something going on there in the midst of that national disaster, natural disaster. There's a suffering. And as Romans states it, the fall of mankind actually initiated a groaning, a groaning from all of creation. Look with me on the screen at this section of Romans 8, and here's what I'd like to do with you. We don't normally do it this way. Normally, we break it down verse by verse, but I want to take 18 through 23 as a big chunk right now so that we get an overarching view of it. So if you have your Bible open, follow along this way, or look at this big, big chunk with me on the screen, verses 18 through 23. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God." For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. There's three Greek words in your notes this morning. If you pull them out of the bulletin, you've already seen them. And this first one, sustenazo. It's talking about the groaning, but it's not just in singular form. Do you notice that Paul has written it in plural form? And as you read the definition of it, you see it's in plural form. To moan jointly, to be doing something together. There's a common calamity. 
Now this word is used in the description of the Old Testament when it talks about all of Israel being in a place of groaning. Why? Because 400 years of slavery under the boot of Egypt. 400 years, and Scripture says they were groaning and moaning as a joint nation saying, God, when will you deliver us from this? So this is the kind of groaning that Paul's talking about here. I've come to understand, even though I don't know medicine, there is a vast difference between the groaning and the moaning of a delivery room and the groaning of an emergency room. They're both groaning, but one is bringing life, and one is a desperation to try and hang on to life. So we find ourselves as a church, as a group of people who say we belong to Jesus, we find ourselves in a place called a family waiting room, and we're waiting and waiting and waiting for regeneration. Because the groaning of this planet will one day suddenly stop because God's going to enter the delivery room. And in the meantime, we're told there's labor pains going on. So Paul breaks it down into two major components. He lists them right there. He says, all creation groans. And he says, we ourselves, we also groan. Now, those are the two categories I want to talk with you about in part A and part B. First, this morning, we're going to talk in part A about creation groaning. What does that actually look like? Why does Scripture describe it this way? Well, let's just touch on the big picture first. Never want to assume that you know all of this. I I meet people every week who are brand new to church or brand new to New Hope. They've never heard these things before. So let me just touch on the big picture first and then drill down for just a moment. Mankind created in God's image, absolutely flawless without sin whatsoever. And somehow, Scripture says radiating the glory of God back to him, being a reflector of the perfection of who God is. But because of the fall of man and because of the rebellion and the disobedience of God, Scripture says we all now fall short of the glory of God. According to Romans, we've all got sin on us, and we can't attain unto God. And mankind knows we fall short. Whatever we had before is gone And internally, we're driven to get back to that place. And that explains all world religions. World religions driven to be acceptable, knowing something is wrong, something is broken. How do we fix this? Well, according to Scripture, verse 19 says, it's not just mankind that understands that. There is an anxious longing of creation. So here's your second Greek word this morning you see on the screen. The second Greek word is talking about this anxious longing almost unpronounceable in the English language because there's so many vowels stacked in there together. But in the Greek language, it has this sense of intense anticipation, something that you just can't wait for. You're so earnest about it. It's especially vivid because it has this picture associated with it of a physical response, an outstretched head, a craning of the neck, a longing of the eyes, looking for something distant. So it helps me especially if I think back to maybe World War II, a time in America when people used trains far more than what they do today. So when you think of this anxious longing, picture a family standing on the platform at a train station, and a loved one has been away overseas at war, and they know that they're coming back, and on that platform they can hear the sounds of the train approaching. What do they begin to do? The neck stretches out, the head's looking long down the track in earnest anticipation of something that's coming. There's going to be a longing associated with this. 
this anticipation, waiting for something they know that's going to be happening. So God says creation, all of creation stands on its tiptoes, waiting, longing, desiring what God is going to do. Now Paul uses the word creation ultimately four or five times in this very short passage over and over again. In verse 19 and 20, in verse 21, and in verse 22. What is he talking about when he says creation? Well, he's talking about that portion of what God created that operates or functions without logic or without an eternal soul. You are the highest of God's created order on this planet. You have an eternal soul. But that's not true of plant life. That's not true of animals. It's not true of the inanimate objects. Mountains, rivers, streams, the celestial bodies, as magnificent as they are in the heavens. Yet the Bible gives a personification to those bodies, those components of nature. It actually says that the heavens and the hills, they applaud, they clap their hands, the trees of the field celebrate God. We're told that they're given a personification and that those things, they're waiting. They're waiting for something according to Scripture. A revealing, an uncovering. And that takes us to your third and final Greek word this morning. And I needed to put those in there so you understand the angle from which Paul is coming at this with. This particular word will probably be more familiar to you. When it's talking about a revealing, it's talking about an unveiling. It's actually the word where we get the English word revelation from. The book, the book of revelation comes from this word apocalypsis. Because you think of apocalypse, and when we think of an apocalypse, we think of end times things. We think of destruction. That's what, not what apocalypsis is. It, apocalypsis is, is actually an appearing, a manifestation of something that's been anticipated. So according to what Paul is writing here, there's an unveiling coming. There's something that's going to be revealed, and we're not talking about like taking a drape off from a statue. At an appointed time, God is going to reveal who belongs to Him. Who are the ones who are the non-condemned. All of creation anticipating this. All of creation wants this unveiling. So with outstretched head, watching, when is it coming? Where are you bringing it? How will we know when it's coming? God, reveal this. One of our original duties when God created us before the fall of man was to rule over all of creation. God put us here for that purpose. We find specifically as we go to the book of Genesis, God wanted us to rule over this planet. So you see this example on the screen from Genesis 1.27. It says this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And what, church? And rule. Rule over it. And he goes on to list everything that he wanted us to rule over. But our dominion, our rule has been replaced by disorder, by chaos. Because sin allowed the disorder in. It allowed the chaos because of the curse, and I need to use that word curse over and over and over again in our remaining minutes together so that we understand what is now in place that will not be in place in the future. So God put a curse on this planet, 
because of the rejection man brought against God in disobedience. So we find God having to deal with man, and we go back to Genesis again for that example from chapter 3, verse 17. God speaking to Adam, because you have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. So when disobeying God, not only man fell, not only man was cursed, but the whole planet was put under a curse. And this was a judicial action on God's part. Do you hear that? A judicial action. The planet didn't suddenly decide to go into chaos. This is something that God did. And creation continues to this very day to suffer because of what man did. So check this. Before the fall, no weeds, right? No need for Roundup. No need for pesticides in the soil. There's no poisonous plants. There are no poisonous creatures. No killer animals. Nothing to cause mankind suffering. But after the fall, after the rejection of God, you look with me on the screen at verse 20, and it breaks it down in just a couple words, or look in your own notes this morning. It says very specifically in verse 20, creation was subjected to futility. So that means because of sin... No part of nature now exists as God originally designed it. Things were distinctively different than what they are today. So there's a verb going on in here, and you know that verbs are action words. And so when you see this verb, it says creation was subjected. The action word within there, the verb, is it was subjected. That tells us nature didn't do this to itself. The curse is placed on this planet by someone. It was placed into subjection, not by creation's choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Well, who is that? Who has the capacity to do that? Who is responsible? Well, there's only three characters involved here. There's Adam, and there's Satan, and there's God. And so we certainly understand that Adam and Satan had no power to bring such far-reaching, cataclysmic change. So that only leaves us with one answer. Only God could do this. Because if you have your Bible open right now, or you're looking at it on your phone, or, or you're looking at it on the screen, you understand the next part of what it says. It was subjected to futility. Those next two words are really important. In hope. See, there's no reason to think that Satan would bring any hope. He doesn't act in hope. So this verb is really important. It was subjected in hope. Your God is the God of hope. He's the, the one that has that characteristic about him. And really important, we understand the contrast that's going on here that Paul is highlighting. We must understand this really elementary issue. The Bible is very clear that all of this chaos, all of this suffering, everything that we're talking about that's going on on planet Earth, all of it was introduced by one sin. He just ate a piece of fruit, right? Just a piece of fruit. My guess is in your life over the course of it, I don't know how old you are, you probably committed a greater sin than just eating a piece of fruit. 
just a piece of fruit, yet that piece of fruit represents standing in rebellion against God, choosing something other than God. That one action introduced all of this annihilation because the core capacity of sin at its very root is annihilation, and one sin brought down the entire universe. So if you're trying to understand sin, if you're trying to understand suffering, if you're trying to understand disease, trying to make sense of why things are the way they are on this planet, big worldview, get a big worldview picture. All disease, all decay, all pain, all broken relationships. You got a broken heart this morning? All brokenness, all disaster, all death, all evil because of sin. And the reality is it will not cease. It's not going to stop until the one who brought the curse removes it when he brings a new heaven and a new earth according to Scripture. Look with me on the screen, 2 Peter 3.13, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, it's absolutely true. Despite the curse, God's provision is still evident. His goodness to us is still visible. We live on an amazing planet, and it still staggers me when I look at what God has given us, even though this is the effect after the fall just check with me on this. Food is still delightful to enjoy, amen? <laughs> we like our food. Water still brings nourishment to us. Flowers are still beautiful. But they decay. They die. We understand mountains are magnificent. The forest, they're absolutely marvelous. I love a good walk in the woods. And the planets in their orbit... They are spectacular. But even so, even though all of that is true, this earth is not friendly. It is a violent and a dangerous place. It is sheer fantasy to think that this planet is not cursed and that it naturally yields a very comfortable life. Just sit down and talk with one of my relatives who grew up in the 1930s in Levering, Michigan, 12 miles from the Mackinac Bridge. My mother, as a little girl growing up in the Depression era, worked alongside her family, trying the best they could to scratch and claw a living out of the ground, trying to get soil that wouldn't grow potatoes to grow potatoes. Barely existing. This earth is not a friendly place. It doesn't naturally yield a comfortable life. And so we spend enormous amounts of money in an attempt to fix the brokenness. We build gigantic structures to keep death away, and we call them hospitals. We spend a lot of money on makeup trying to make ourselves look better. And we go to hairdressers, and we spend a lot of money on pesticides to deal with bugs and with blight in the soil. And we put braces on our teeth and we wear eyeglasses and we throw old food out of the fridge because of decay. All of that is true, yet according to God's own word, according to this encouraging passage, in the future, there's a renovation coming. The groaning is going to stop. Do you know that the ancients expected this even before Jesus walked this planet? 
There were those whom God gave an understanding to, prophetic information, that they could even look to the future and understand. There was a day coming when all this would cease. Look with me on the screen of what Isaiah wrote, Isaiah 65, 17. He said, for behold, he's writing, he's quoting God here, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Uh, as you read Romans chapter 8, you find that Paul makes no mention whatsoever of when this is going to happen, nor does he give us any detail on the sequence of the events. There's a lot of passages in Scripture that give insight on it. We spent almost a whole year in the book of Revelation working through it about seven, eight years ago trying to understand it. Well, let me just give you one verse that so shows the characteristic of what happens in the very, very end of things. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, you see this on the screen, there will no longer be any, what church? Any curse. No longer any curse. That thing that we saw in the book of Genesis that popped up because of man's rebellion, God says, I'm doing away with that. I'm destroying that. That will no longer be there. When man is completely restored, the natural world will be restored and the curse will end. That helps you understand why Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer the way that he did. Jesus, will you teach us how to pray like John's disciples pray? Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Jesus put that in the very front end of the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come. Restore what has been broken. Fix this destruction. Your kingdom back on this planet. So Paul writes in response to that, he's just copying Jesus. It's not always going to be broken. It's temporary. So when you come to Romans chapter 8 in verses 20 and 21, he says, this was done in hope. In hope what, Paul? In hope that the creation itself also will be set free. Jesus called that awesome time the regeneration. If you go to Matthew 19 later today, you'll see him talking about it. A time when the old will be removed and the new will be put in place. So you find the Bible littered with descriptions, with glowing language talking about what that time will look like. This is part of your inheritance. When we talk about what are you going to inherit, child of God, you're an heir with him, what is going to be part of your possession? Well, we just go back to Isaiah to see a descriptor of things that are different than what we have right here, now here on planet Earth. Look with me on the screen one more time at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Stop right there. <laughs> have you ever seen a wolf laying down with a lamb? Well, yeah, when they're chewing on it, right? When they've got a lamb chop sitting on their dinner plate but not living with a lamb. You understand how radically different this is? And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. That's not normal. How drastically different were things before the fall than what they are now? When I think of a leopard lying down with the young goat, 
My mind can't go there because my mind goes to a goat on a chain in like the movie Jurassic Park when Tyrannosaurus Rex comes out and snatches the goat because that's what meat eaters do. They're predators. But according to Scripture, a leopard's going to lie down with a goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. I'm never letting a little boy walk alongside a leopard and a wolf on this planet so Scripture says, also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. Now, if that doesn't make your mind do loops, I don't know what will. What? What does that future time look like? How messed up are we? How good were things when Adam and Eve walked this planet? How rebellious are we that things have changed to that degree? See, the Bible is looking to a time when the total effect of sin will be done away with and the creation will stand as God intended it to be. So I'm very aware it is our sin that put it in bondage and it is our future redemption that sets it free. See, God's universe it is inseparably linked with us. God says there are indicators going on here. And he uses all of this moaning, all of this suffering. He associates all of it that's associated with the fall to get our attention. To say, pay attention. God allows this suffering. He allows this decay. He allows this despair to drive us either into relationship with him or deeper into dependence upon him. If you just follow my line of thinking, I can give you a very simple example of what I'm talking about here. How God uses creation to say, pay attention. Do you not understand what's going on here? So just hear this. Even though we are the highest of God's created order on this planet, the only thing created higher than us, the angels, and they're not dwelling here, we are. So we're the highest of God's created order on earth, yet we are still learning the language of this planet, constantly trying to interpret its smiles and its tears. The same creation that applauds God, glory to God, praise you, the mountains clap their hands, that same planet grieves at the sin of man and groans. So at the death of the Son of God, when sin believes it has dealt the final blow on the cross, taking him out, what did God do in the midst of that? God allowed an eyewitness, visible account of the evidence of creation responding to God's activity. The created order reacting to God on the cross while He's crushing sin. What is creation doing? But the earth trembling with a violent earthquake. The rocks being shredded into the sun darkening. God saying, pay attention. See, an association with nature is not something God says to take lightly, but rather stand in awe. I'm on the move. I'm doing things. Take notice, Christ follower. The earth trembles at the movement of God's activity. 
and central to the coming regeneration of all things, the final regeneration is the regeneration of mankind. You absolutely are redeemed. You absolutely are sealed in the Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, destined for eternity, but you have not yet inherited your glorified body. The final regeneration has not taken place yet. And so we continue to groan. We ourselves, within ourselves, we continue to wait, looking for that day. So as Christ followers, we are heirs to a future kingdom. But he came not only to restore us. He came to make all things new. Those are Jesus' own words. Let me remind you of that from the book of Revelation again. Just look with me on the screen very quickly. Revelation 21.5. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. See, Jesus is the great rectifier. He reconciles all things to God. So yeah, absolutely, suffering is real. And it's going on in multiple ways upon this planet. But it's not confined to human existence. Now here's the great thing out of Romans chapter 8 that Paul's writing about in this section. This suffering that we're talking about, it is not meaningless pain. It's not there without a purpose, and it's certainly not from a disinterested, uncaring God. It is a witness to the activity of the Heavenly Father who keeps saying, pay attention. Do you not notice what's going on here? So we find ourselves in a waiting room, waiting, waiting for the regeneration of all things, waiting like all of creation on tiptoe for the arrival of the regeneration, waiting with confidence for God's ultimate purposes when he does make everything completely new. So Paul writes Romans chapter 8, verse 22. For we know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth, waiting and waiting and waiting. Just before I let you go in the last couple minutes, notice this one thing that Paul includes in that statement. We know. He's assuming this is common knowledge. If you're a believer in Jesus and you read the Bible, you certainly understand this. And if you, even if you're not a believer and you don't spend time in the Bible, you can see things are messed up. So Paul says, there's something that's common knowledge here. This creation is in pain. And it's not just pain. It is meaningful pain. It's like the pain of childbirth. So he can say, for I consider the sufferings of this present time they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that is waiting for us. He can say that with great confidence. See the pains, the aches, the suffering. Maybe you've got physical suffering you're going through right now. Those broken hearts, a broken body, that is bearable. Why, Christ follower? Because your redemption draws nigh. Amen? God says this is true. So next week, we get to look at why he says not only creation... But we ourselves, we groan, waiting for the redemption of our body. Now, if you're under 30, chances are if you're under 30, you're thinking, well, why do I need that glorified body, right? I look pretty good. Well, hear me on this. 
We're told that as part of your inheritance, you will stand in the presence of God Almighty. To stand in the presence of God Almighty, you will not be able to do it in the form that you are in. And just to tease you a little bit, you wouldn't be able to exist for a nanosecond in His presence in the form you exist in. No man can see God and live, and God needs to make a change to us. We're told that God, Jesus, is brighter than the noonday sun in His glorified form. John wrote about that in Revelation. I can't stand to look at the noonday sun for even a second without it harming the retina of my eyes. You couldn't bear to take upon the image of God, so you need to be changed. So Paul says, we, we ourselves, we groan within ourselves because we can't even look in the face of God. There has to be a change. But that's for next week. Let me pray with you that you remember the things that we've talked about this morning. Father, I thank you for this group who is so, uh, with so much discipline, dedicated themselves to getting up early and being here for this service to study your word, that they would know you better and understand better who we are to you. I pray your hand of blessing upon them for their dedication. And Father, where there's questions that have been triggered, just like there were last night, I pray that you would help these individuals resolve the questions within their heart as much as your word reveals to us. Drive them to talk to other individuals to try and get resolve on these questions about you. And Father, where you're moving in our hearts right now to draw us closer to you, I pray that you would accomplish that as well. But for each of us, Father, as we leave this auditorium and we take on this day, I pray that you would cause us to remember the things that we've studied. And as we talk to people who are frustrated and, and can't make sense of the things on this planet, that you would move your people to respond, to help them to understand, to take them to your word. That we would help them make sense and father in hope that you would draw them into relationship with you out of that. We pray for this in the matchless name of the one who redeemed us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.